When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, before we start with this week's edition of The Final Word, we should tell you that tickets to our two live shows in Melbourne and Adelaide have been selling fast. Uh, They're coming together really nicely, Jeff. um, Please, this is now definitely the time to jump on the website. If you're considering it, if you're on the fence, Jeff, uh, tell people why they should do it, not only for logistical reasons that they might miss out on a ticket, but but why what we are doing on the night is going to be so much fun. It is time to drop the hammer and dispense some indiscriminate justice, <laughs> if I may quote the uh, early... 2000s strategy game Starcraft. <laughs> it's time. Um, the we have been selling actually way more tickets than I expected, which is great. Um, you know, I have low expectations, and you won't be disappointed. But uh, things have gone well above expectations, so we're going to have a very big crowd in in Melbourne um, and a pretty sizable crowd building in Adelaide. So jump on the website. It's finalwordcricket.com. Um, you can find information about the events there. November 18th for Melbourne. November 27th for Adelaide. Um, we've got. Jason Gillespie and Jim Maxwell joining us in Adelaide. We're working out the details of the show in Melbourne as well. Um, but it's at the Mission to Seafarers in Melbourne and it's at the Ambassador Hotel in Adelaide. There'll be um, excellent venues both and we're looking to have a, a lot of fun on that night. So come on down. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I'm sitting in the offices of The Guardian, actually. I'm about to jump on a flight back to Australia. We'll be reunited in Melbourne in just 36 hours from now or something like that. I've um, been live blogging the, uh, the the Australia-Sri Lanka T20 International. Which what a contest. As what soon a as gripping I land, contest it was. <laughs> oh, what, a, what a thriller. What a thriller. The, the, blo- the, 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 the game of cricket, I was going to say. The blockbuster, but not quite. And then, uh, yeah, upon returning back on Friday, I'm straight to the MCG to do the England-New England New Zealand game and then the Australia-Sri Lanka game. So uh, the world cricket never stops and nor does this show. Jeff can't stop, won't stop. It's been a, a fairly hefty week. Uh, we're going to have a conversation, which is a fraction lighter, though, aren't we? We're talking to our friend uh, Dan Liebke, who, of course, we've been associated with before in White Line Wireless Land and a dear friend of the show. But he's written a, a really interesting and fun new book, and we thought, what, what better time to get him on and, and lighten the mood a little bit after what will probably be a fairly heavy duty next half an hour mm. or so. Can, can I tell you um, a quick story, though? So I forgot, I, sh- I should have mentioned this during the Liebke interview, but um, I, I was up in Sydney. 10 days ago whatever it was um, and and was just walking down King Street in Newtown and a, a bloke leaned out of a car window as he was driving past at about quarter past five in the afternoon and yelled white line wireless out the window as he drove by <laughs> now I don't know I don't know who it was it could have been there are some some co-callers who moved to Sydney James McKern and co it might have been someone I knew I didn't get a good enough look but all mm. I know is that a passing car in the afternoon uh, someone screamed out of an open window the name of the radio station that we used to run out of my land room oh. in 2013 what a, what a beautiful moment imagine I know, what a thrill to think that when we were running around doing this five or six years ago that people would be haranguing you out their car window in Sydney. There's a lot of things going on there. It's beautiful. So I, it's, it's, a sh- 
It's a shame I didn't get to mention that to Dan, but you know, I'm sure he'll listen to the show because he's a rampant egotist and he'll want to hear himself. Um, so <laughs> to get to that bit, he'll have to get to this bit. So, you know, there you go. I, I have told you, Dan. Uh, before we get to Dan and then subsequently some nerd pledge, we missed last week when we uh, had Tanya on the show because we ended up doing quite a long interview with her. If you didn't listen last week, it was the climate change special, so to speak, uh, where we had Tanya Aldred on to talk about um, climate policy and cricket. But we, we had so much... Um, dis- discussion points that we decided to jettison um, their pledge to this week so we'll do a hefty chunk of that at the back end here after we spoke to Dan but uh, to start the show Jeff um, not particularly good news really is it um, we, we, we last week were lauding the work of Shakib Al-Hassan um, for having been the sort of shop steward in the industrial dispute that was taking place between the Bangladesh players and the board and no more than a week later, he's been uh, embroiled in a in a scandal, and that's really what it is. The ICC have banned him for two years, uh, one of those suspended, so he'll miss the next 12 months of cricket for failing to disclose approaches he had made to him across three series and six months from a bookmaker in 2018. Uh, I suppose, Jeff, what we know from these briefings, we're never really subject to them, but we hear what, they, what goes on in them from the players. They... The golden rule is the minute that someone talks to you, you've got to report it. The, the, the hotlines are posted all over the walls of the, of the players' area at cricket grounds, the phone number, the email address and so on. Um, they could do it anonymously. There's a number of ways they can report, but the major sin is if you don't report, then you're, you are culpable, and, and that's why Shakib has got himself into this hot water. Yeah, it's really upsetting, really. Um honestly and we had this kind of conversation just recently about Shaiman Anwar and the UAE players you know the players Mm. that you've invested some um some love in really and and we we did love Shakib's work across the World Cup especially it was a a delight watching him be one of the best players in the competition and, and really push you know advance that line for the credibility of Bangladesh as a cricket playing country he's a, a huge loss to them on the field but it's equally upsetting when a player who you expect so much of just fucks it up so badly and i i had a read through the detailed version of the judgment that the icc put out and it's relatively explicit in terms of what's going on and and my reading of it isn't that he was conspiring to work with a bookmaker but more that Um, It it sounds like this guy was trying to sell him on various investment strategies and things like cryptocurrencies and stuff like that. So it seems like basically he had Mm. this guy saying, I've got ways that I can help make you make a bunch of money with investing in the right things and so on. And Shakib was interested in that. And then at the same time, at various times, this guy was saying, oh, by the way, do you have any information about this or that? Do you you have anything that might be useful for me about this series? Um, And that probably those advances were rebuffed but there are also um some messages that were deleted so it 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 doesn't look like from what we've seen that there was actually any conspiracy to spot fix anything um or and it looks like they never actually met in person but yeah there were three separate occasions where there was um a pretty explicit attempt to get inside information about the teams or the pitch or the conditions or whatever it might have been um which is always the softening up tool you know that's what that's what these guys use at at an early stage to to get you into their cart and Shakib knows that he's vastly experienced he captains Bangladesh he knows what the deal is he he knew well enough to know that as soon as he started getting investigated he said yep I did it this is what happened um you know here's the information but he's he's still committed that 
cardinal sin of, of not being upfront about what was going on. Yeah, well, the anti-corruption unit um, looked dim on those messages being deleted, as you say, and I think there was a reference to Shakib wanting to meet this chap before he reported him. It just stinks, and there's no, uh, there's nothing which um, can be used to to defend Shakib other than the fact that when he was pinged, he kind of revealed all evidently, which is why he had the second year of his suspension suspended by the authorities through the process the ICC went through. So, yeah. I mean, it's just been described by the, the chairman of selectors or the former chairman of selectors, rather, as the saddest day in Bangladeshi cricket. And, I mean, look, maybe that's uh, recency bias and, you, you know, in the, in, the, in the trauma of it all, you, you might feel that way losing the best player um, that Bangladesh has ever produced as far as his, his um, numerical output and what he was able to achieve in the World Cup this year and the fact that he was without doubt a certainty to be a wisdom cricketer of the year um, next year. I'm sure um, that that won't happen now on the basis of this suspension. So he had a lot to lose, but Jeff, the, the conversation often returns in these dramatic uh, situations uh, to the inequity of funding across the game, doesn't it? We, we often hear the, the, the Pakistani players excuse, or certainly it used to be when they got embroiled in these situations, was that they weren't earning as much money as, as other players and they saw this as an opportunity to kind of almost level the playing field on that measure. And again, not that that's an excuse for a heartbeat, but the fact that um, Bangladesh were just in the middle of an industrial dispute, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose it does prompt a question about that whether there should be more equitable funding of international cricketers. And this is something the ICC has looked at before, but something as simple as having uniform match payments. We looked at these last year. I think Osman Samuyudin from Crick Info did a fairly long study on this a couple of years ago in the Cricket Monthly, uh, where he went through and showed the enormous disparity between England, Australia, and, and a lot of the other countries. And uh, nations like Bangladesh often sit right at the very bottom of those lists. So, um, and again, that, that shouldn't be. That they, I'm not. I don't want to get this interpreted as me giving him an out. I'm not. But I'm simply saying that um, there, there is a, a fairly logical uh, piece of infrastructure that could be put in place uh, as far as payments are concerned to eliminate that part of the conversation. There's a, a point at which the temptation becomes. Um it, it evaporates if you're earning enough, basically. Um, I think to give a rule of thumb type distinction, I'm pretty sure that when Muhammad Amir got done for his spot fixing thing, he was on a Category C contract with Pakistan, which was worth about a thousand pounds a month. So that's about roughly twenty five thousand Australian dollars a year, say. And you compare that to the lowest ranked player on Australia's central contracts list, who I think is on about eight hundred thousand a year. So. Plus match payments as well. So if you're making, you know, clearing a million bucks a year from playing cricket for Australia and someone says, I can get you $20,000 for a spot fix, it's not very tempting. But if they can do that when you're making, you know, they're going to match your annual wage, then obviously yeah. the temptation's much uh, much more compelling. And look, and, and Shakib obviously makes a truckload of money. He plays in the domestic T20 circuit. Like, in a way, he's the wrong person to use as an example of this. But it is a conversation that, that does sort of bob up periodically around it. Um we had Freddie Wilde and, and Tim Wigmore on the show the other week talking about the, the T20 leagues and, and the exposures there, and most of them go to young players. We've seen that historically, how they've been groomed and so on. Izzy Westbury was on the show recently as well, a, a, not only a cricket journalist but a lawyer who's worked in uh, in this space uh, before she was working full-time in cricket, and um, she you know, made a similar observation uh, about the exposure of players um, who aren't right at the front line of international fair and so it's not surprising to again see a T20 competition wrapped up in all of this albeit the IPL um, which 
is the biggest and the best, no doubt. But historically, there, there have been some dodgy operators in and around the, 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 the margins of that since the get-go. Yeah, and it's just a matter of who can get your contact details. You know, this is just someone who gets Shakib's phone number yeah, and yeah. hits him up on WhatsApp and says, you know, you up, um, and, and he was up. <laughs> So late drink, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's never had a late drink before. How easily, that's how easily it can happen. And when there's, you know, he, he probably would have reported the approach if it was just some random foray. But if it's someone who's dangling the prospect of making you money in some other way, then um, then maybe he didn't want to see that contact disappear. I don't know. I'm sure there'll be more to come out about it. But it's yeah. it's deeply unfortunate. Um, it's you know he's one of the best players in the world and particularly when Bangladesh are about to go and play two test matches in India um, mm. now they've they've played one test in India in their entire career as as a test playing nation uh, it, India's been more inclined to tour Bangladesh but they don't get the return invite very often they're playing a day night test they play, they've got you know not one test but two they're playing some T20s as well it's such a big moment and to have their their heartbeat of their team Suspended just on the cusp of that is um, it's it's really upsetting. He'll also miss the first half of the World T Twenty or the T Twenty World Cup, as I've got to get used to calling it that. Uh, this time next year, so he'll be available for the 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 second half of the competition if Bangladesh proceed to that stage. But the probability of them getting there without him is is limited. So uh, you, you would think that um, this is going to have a fairly significant effect on Bangladesh cricket over the next 12 months. He'll miss the two test matches that Australia are scheduled to play in Bangladesh next June. Uh, fingers crossed they go ahead, although, of course, we're fairly sceptical. I'm sure Australia will try and find a way of getting out of it. But if, if they do go to Bangladesh next year, um, remember, of course, Shakib was player of the match when they won at Dhaka uh, there in two. 2017 so he's going to play, pay a, a reasonably big cricketing cost in the short term although I'm sure as far as the the longevity of his career he's already shown that we said rather he wants to play till he's an old man so I'm sure he'll be back but um, he has a, a punishment to serve and he's lost a lot of paint along the way so um, that's a, yeah we weren't necessarily thinking about talking about this topic this week Jeff it was going to be all cricket but we had to lead with that issue uh, before we move on to the actual on-field stuff uh, as far as the Australian men are concerned Jeff it's been two of the three T20s as I said the, the, the second of those has finished just before we've picked up our respective microphones Australia have won by nine wickets with seven overs to spare it felt um appropriate that uh, they won this match with a leg side wide. Warner didn't actually get to hit the winning runs, which sort of sums up really where Sri Lanka have been at across the two matches. Clobbered for 240-odd in the first game, knocked over for 117 in the second one. Warner's done as he's pleased, not been dismissed yet, made 160 runs along the way. Smith looked in glittering form coming in at number three today. Another first ticked off. Um, Jeff, his first innings back in Australian colours since Sandpaper. So yet another one of those firsts for Smith and he made a half century. Um, Finch and Maxwell did likewise, boshing them around at the Adelaide Oval uh, on Sunday in front of about 14 people. But still, it has started and it's a marathon domestic summer which will run all the way to the end of March when they play New Zealand at the, at the back end. So uh, we're a Way, even if it is quite off-Broadway and definitely uh, not capturing the public imagination, not yet anyway. No, I had a call from ABC Radio in Adelaide to have a chat about the game today and they were saying, oh, we didn't even realise the cricket had started until, yeah. you know, on the weekend suddenly there were reports coming in and, and, and away it went. So T20s in October aren't necessarily going to seize the public imagination. But 
uh, I suppose they've got to get it rolling somewhere and it's it's good for television maybe, but it, it's locked away on pay TV so a lot of the broader public won't be too aware that it's on and it's, it's probably the, the real nuffies like us who are the ones who mm. actually pay attention to this stuff. But, it, you know, tentatively early good signs for Australia. They've been a pretty ordinary T20 team for most of the time that the formats existed when it's come to the global tournaments. They've got the Home World Cup. They're desperate to do well in that because they will actually be judged harshly if they fail in a Home World Cup versus the ones that they've failed in overseas. So that part of it's important. And they've they've started they've started pretty well. They they look pretty decent. Obviously, the, the opposition hasn't been up to much so far, but of course, Sri Lanka just went to Pakistan and beat the number one side in the world 3-0 with half their top players missing. There have been a few changes made to that side coming over here and um, they've suddenly flipped to looking like a very ordinary team. You know, the thing is, I think the conversation around the Australian T20 side is about 12 months behind where things are really at. If, if you go uh, back to 2018 on two separate occasions, once in Zimbabwe and once in Auckland, Australia went to within a fraction of a point of, of the top of the world rankings, in other words, overtaking Pakistan, who've been at the top for the last three and a half years fairly consistently, I think. Uh, so they, they did kind of get their act together in that tri-series across New Zealand, England, Australia um, mm. at the start of 18. Then, of course, sandpaper But they happens. got whitewashed in the UAE. No, no, sure. But I'm just kind of going... Like, I'm just kind of noting that even in the sandpaper mm. bit, they still got to the final against Pakistan without Warner and Smith. Yes, they didn't do well in the yep. UAE. But I, the point I'm making is, is that... They have been building, uh, and with a bowler like Billy Stanlake, who came in for Mitchell Stark today, Stark was attending the wedding of his brother Brandon, who of course is the Commonwealth Games champion in the high jump. Um, so Stanlake got his chance, and, and he looked really good. If, if anything, I, I know the main talking point out of Adelaide was the batting, but um, the bowling. Uh, I mean, you you were watching that game closely, Jeff. The bowl reports are outstanding, and today Ashton Agar played his second game in a row without conceding a boundary. Um, Adam Zampa picked up two wickets with big turning slow looping leg breaks after setting them up with wrongens which you know suggests that he's got quite a few more tricks in the bag than than people sometimes think with Zampa they think that he bowls essentially straight breaks and wrongens but two wickets mm-hmm. with big turning leg breaks was was encouraging from him um, Stan Lake looked fast and threatening um, Kane Richardson's a vastly improved bowler as well and he's been taking the first over and then you've got Patrick Cummins who you know he's so accurate uh, and so difficult to get away at his pace uh, with his potency, mm. that they've got a really good attack, and Mitchell Stark, you know, kind of speaks for himself with the white ball, especially in sort of rougher, drier Australian conditions where he can get the ball really moving around. So, look, I, I feel as though um, if they can get the batting going as well as they have to start this series through the next twelve months, the bowling already takes care of itself. They're, they're pretty well positioned. I quite like the um, the, the current. Uh, nickname going around the Australian team where they're calling Pat Cummins Winks. They're, they're saying he's he's just he's a big glossy thoroughbred who just sort of steps his way around the field, um, which is you know it, it fits. He's he's looked tremendous in the last couple of games, but I'm I'm reserving judgment till I see this bowling attack up against better batting teams because I, I just have a feeling that that Virat Kohli and company or sides like that could do a fair bit of mischief against someone like Billy Stanlake on a, a nice true pitch with good bounce. Yep. He he might be able to, to towel up 
um, a Sri Lankan side who aren't used to those conditions. But for, for players like Rohit Sharma and so on who love the cross-bat shots, who can use the bounce really well, who uppercut the ball, um, who take on the short ball, who pull, who flip it over fine leg and so on and can use that, that pace and lift out of the deck, you know, good cutters of the ball as well, they're the ones who can send a bowler like that for, you know, 40 or 50 off their four overs instead of 20 for two. No, that, that's a good point. But I guess the, the counter to that would be that last year when Stan Lake was bowling at the best team in the world in T20 cricket, Pakistan, he was very effective. He was by far Australia's most lethal weapon. And I suppose um, that's added to by his point of difference. They're always saying in, in short-form cricket, the, 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 the more you can... The more variety you can 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 put on the field across your five frontline bowlers, the, the more effective your attack is. And Stan Lake will always be six foot ten. He may not be as quick as he is at the moment, or, or get as much bounce, but he'll always have that different angle to, to the other quicks in the side. So I think there is a place for him. Whether he's going to end up in the side ahead of um, Cummins or Stark, well, that's a different question. But um, he, he mm. was certainly good tonight in his first game of the summer. So Australia are in. Pretty good, Nick. As I mentioned off the top, the series concludes in Melbourne on Friday. There's three T20s against Pakistan next week. Uh, and then they're into the Red Bull stuff. The first test match is at Brisbane on the 21st of November, then Adelaide. And it goes on and on and on in, in, the, uh, in, in the usual way for an Australian summer. Probably a bigger talking point today than the uh, than the, the the international that was being played was the media release that went out about half an hour after it started, confirming a, a report that Daniel Bredig had in Crick Info earlier in the day that Andrew McDonald is going to be the new senior assistant of the men's side. So Justin Langer on Jared Waitley's show last week kind of alluded to this, that they were open to having a kind of a senior assistant type character um, in the mix who could still have an involvement with T20 or short-form franchises around the world in order to help pay for them. So a problem in having a, a high-profile assistant coach has often been that they can't pay them as much as the teams around the world who, who play in the domestic competitions, which stands to reason when, you, when you're mm. looking at the fact that McDonald coaches in the IPL now. As of next year, he'll be with the Rajasthan Royals. He's looking after the Birmingham Phoenix in the 100 next year. So the way they've balanced that off is letting him keep those roles, which I don't know. I mean... The I, Phoenix I, rise from the ashes. <laughs> that's that's what they do. They, they as, leave as a lasting learned, impression long after the last ball has been bowled. As we learned in the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest. But uh, yeah, the, the, the idea that um, McDonald can um, do both, I, I can see one side of the argument that it could prove a conflict for him as far as um, how he deploys different assets under his disposal but also I can see how it's quite clever too in, in trying to almost have a successor prepared for Langer ahead of time so that they have someone who's sort of one in there one in, one out one back who can come in and and, and um, do his job and get to know that side um, in the event that Langer did you know not seek a, a renewal in three and a half years time. It is tricky because you know if you have a say a batsman who you're coaching in the IPL and you're trying to help him work out how to clean up an Australian spinner who <laughs> he's then going to be up against in, say, a T20 World Cup a couple of months later when you're going to be coaching the Australian t t uh, team and he'll be playing for someone else. There is a conflict there, but I suppose you can only like you can only eat what's put in front of you. You can only do the job that's there at the time, which is help the players that you're with and, and not think about the future in that way. It, it's got to be about the, the collegiality of, you know, cricket helping every player be the best version of themselves they can be. And I think if you're a, a coach, you can't 
have any broader thoughts outside that. You just have to do that job. There, there might be, and this is kind of the extreme example, but it's there, there could be instances where injury management could be where a coach is conflicted. But I mean, yeah, like you say, Jeff. I think we can. I think we know enough about Andrew McDonald over the years that he's a guy with integrity. Having interviewed him before, this is he's a good egg, uh, and there's a reason why he's getting these opportunities on the international stage. And look, um, it, it, snapping him up before another international job comes up and he and he ends up in a different system it's probably quite good shopping from ca as well so he will start with australia at a time yet to be announced but it has been said that he will no longer be coaching victoria once that comes about so that that is a a reasonably big shift at one of the state sides as well not great timing given they've already started their season of course he's at the the melbourne renegades too but uh, look they've, they've got they've got time for the bbl and as far as the state cricket's concerned i don't know maybe he'll see out the season they haven't they haven't announced it yet well, uh, he was robbed as a test player. What did he play? Six test four. matches? Should Just the four. four. I know. Should've, Shame. Should have played Should have played 12, you know, honestly. Should have played 44. Um, should, <laughs> I was a huge, maybe not that many. I was a huge Andrew McDonald fan as a player, and it won't surprise you to hear, because he fits right into my sweet spot of a player whose career I watched incredibly closely when I was uh, sitting at the MCG every day of the early 2000 Shield seasons uh, when uh, when he was making a name for himself. So I felt quite invested in his journey and was gutted when he didn't get a chance beyond that South African series in 09, but, but he'll get a chance on, on the international stage now as a coach. So all's well that ends well, kind of. And England have made an appointment of their own for the yeah. England women's team. Lisa Kitely, the Australian batting champ, has been appointed there. So she was running the, the Scorchers and WA, um, the WA team. So she's going to have to jettison those in order to, to go. And, and she's also teaching her 100 team, isn't she? She was she supposed is. to now, be coaching one of the sides. Yeah, this is really interesting. So she won't get the chance to do what McDonald's doing. She's leaving her mm. job at the London Spirit, which was starting next year at the 100. Uh, and but she's, she's the head coach, not the assistant. She is. Oh, no, granted, she is the head coach. But I'm just observing that, you know, that there is she'll be full-time in this gig after she's finished with the WBBL season. Uh, of course, at the Scorchers right now, at, at the WA uh, state side and the WNCL too. So she'll come in to replace Mark Robinson. Ali Maiden will remain the assistant coach. Um, an interesting point that Nick Friend from the Cricketer Magazine made on Twitter, um, uh, Kitely's last international innings, I think I got this right, she was dismissed by Catherine Brunt um, and it was caught by Claire Connor and now Claire Connor's her boss and Catherine Brunt's her opening <laughs> bowler. <laughs> so uh, a nice bit of uh, symmetry there and kind of goes to show Brunt's remarkable longevity uh, in such a, a long uh, and uh, illustrious international career. But she did run the academy uh, for the England side between 2011 and 2015. So as far as her knowing this current crop of England players coming into the, the peak of their careers, it seems to sort of make a lot of sense and equally um, makes a lot of sense for them to, to get her before Australia might look at doing the same. So, um, you know, it's not the first time that England have hired an Australian coach in various sports uh, and, well, in various cricket formats as well. And um, the fact that it's the, the first woman to have this job as well is, is another uh, worthwhile discussion point. So they, they did go for a woman. There was a lot of discussion early on that it would be a man uh, taking on the England gig and, and they made a point of saying that there was a woman on the shortlist and it would seem that that woman's uh, got, the, got the job. So congratulations to to Lisa and I guess we, we, we look forward to, to interviewing her and, and talking to her on the final word soon. Yeah, and seeing what she can 
do to refresh that England team, which needs some refreshing, but mm. she's coming in at that right time with the new system set up that we talked about in at some length with Izzy Westbury a couple of episodes ago, if you want to go back and, and hear more about that. Other exciting developments in women's cricket that will interest you, particularly, Adam, the Hobart Hurricanes are in the top four. <laughs> They've won a couple of games, the Canes, yeah. the, the team in purple who, who have um, frustrated us so much over the last few seasons but they've actually they've, they've had some good pickups Nicola Carey's gone down there who's yep. a, a player who we loved who's been running around for the Sydney Thunder the last few years uh, Chloe Tryon the South African powerhouse who can hit probably the longest ball in world cricket um, has been down there and, and scored a few pretty explosive runs um, Heather Knight's back after she missed last season with yeah rest basically you know injury related rest uh, and they've got Fran Wilson down there as well the England international and, and suddenly they've, they picked up Taylor Valamek as well the Australian super quick bowler of Linda Vakarawa who played for the Sydney Thunder as well so they've gone on a recruiting spree the Canes and they were that team that never had an Australian international play for them and and suddenly, you know, they don't have the Australian star players, but they've got some of the young, exciting prospects have gone down to Hobart to play for them. Yeah, it was really important they got that right. Uh, the difference between the Super League over here, uh, rest in peace, and the Big Bash League has been that in the Super League they are willing to um, move players from season to season to ensure that they had a relatively decent spread of um, domestic, well, not domestic, but uh, nationally contracted players across the, the six teams in that comp. We didn't really have that in Australia, so a lot of them are concentrated in the Sydney teams, especially New South Wales, of course, such a powerhouse in the WNCL, and, and that became the case as well in the WBBL with, I think, three of the four titles so far won by Sydney teams, but Hobart was on the other end of that spectrum. They won their first two games, actually, Jeff, both against the Melbourne Stars, who are the other two, the other cellar dweller from the last couple of years. So um, Hobart were, were dreadful in 2017, 18 and 18, 19, but Melbourne weren't much better than the Melbourne Stars, who are yet to make a finals series, and I think they've lost their They're first not much better four, this season, they've lost their first four last. games. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yep. We, 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 I think going back all the way to season one, alongside the the Perth Scorchers, they look like the two strongest sides, but they've just been diminished season on season, so um, not ideal for the Melbourne side. I, I saw that Phoebe Litchfield, we were talking about her, I don't know, maybe six months ago, uh, when that video went viral of her batting in the nets. Um, and she's uh, looking the part and drawing plenty of attention. 16 years old, played a wonderful lap shot, making 30-odd on debut, made a half-century last week for the Thunder. So um, it surely won't be long before she's uh, integrated into those national squads because she looks like a, a serious talent, left-handed, top-order player, technically correct, hits the ball like a dream. Uh, exactly what we want coming through the system, players who've had the chance to uh, develop um, as juniors while the established senior program has been in place through the WBBL so they have somewhere to go when they're 16 or 17 and they're already up to the task so again it's a it's a big tick for the for the work that's been in or the money rather that's been invested in this pathway over the last five or six years and the up-and-coming players leading the wickets telly as well Maisie Gibson the leg spinner and Maitland Brown who's been almost an all-rounder you'd call it she can yeah. hit the ball pretty hard um, and, and she's taken some great catches in the field but her her quick bowling's her main pursuit um, so you know leading the wicket telly at this stage rather than 
the bigger names um, from the national side coming back into the domestic comp. Oh, I was briefing uh, Daniel Norcross before he did some television coverage of the uh, of the WBBL, maybe on Saturday or Sunday, and, I, and, and, I, and he wanted me, wanted me to tell him all I knew about the Perth Scorchers. And I said, Daniel, the only thing you need to know is that they've flattered to deceive, to use the old cliche, and that's what they're doing mm. again so far this season. They're, they're, they're one and two. Adelaide atop of the ladder, which is something we've predicted most years. It rarely comes to fruition, but they're three and one, so... <laughs> Can't it's never been right before, but it's currently <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's currently right, so get on the strikers. And I know that Nita Dar... he predicted five seasons in a row. Yeah, yeah. Nita Dar, the Pakistani international who we've seen bowl quite a lot over the years, she's taken five wickets so far, so congratulations to her for getting a contract in the WBBL. And as we see this competition grow year to year, when it first started, it was kind of Australia players, England players, a few South Africans, a couple of New Zealanders, and now it's getting a, a far broader footprint. I see Kim Garth's in the wickets as well, and they're nationally contracted with Ireland, of course, she's played in a, a couple of titles with the Sydney Sixers. So, uh, so yeah, again, we'll keep a really close eye on the WBBL through the season and uh, we'll give a, a running report on, on the storylines coming through that week in, week out. Staying with T20 before we uh, round off Section 1, Jeff, um, Papua New Guinea uh, and Namibia have qualified for the, the World T20 men's competition next October, which is a... A wonderful story. I mean, I mean, you've been looking at it quite closely the last couple of days, especially PNG. But to, to think that uh, countries like that, who were so far back in the pack five or six years ago, and are knocking off far more established associate and emerging nations, is great for the game. PNG, not the file format Oi. for Oi. images Oi. that you screenshot on your phone, but uh, <laughs> but the country, Papua New Guinea. They they finished top of their group, so they were the first ones to qualify. I mean, half a dozen teams qualify from sure. from the qualifier, um, so they were still a, a decent chance to go through. But they managed to lock down that spot when they looked in all sorts of trouble. They were playing Kenya; they were falling apart. They were six for nineteen, and then Norman Vanua came in at number eight clobbered 54 runs well he didn't even really clobber them you know he hit a couple of sixes but fewer than half his runs were scored in boundaries but he still went at a strike rate of 112 so it was really smart innings he just that's like um, the um, worked the ball around that's a maxwellian innings that's coming in at six for 19 is like where maxwell came in at six for nine at number eight and made a century against new south wales all those years ago um so maybe yeah, I, I, Norman Vanua is. Add, there, were, there were a few more, a few more boundaries in the Maxwell Hundred. No, no, there sure, they sure were. But I think he's going to be our guy next year. Um, so well done to them. But then he then he came through, bowled the first over as well, and took a wicket in the first over. Oh. And then they they knocked over Kenya for seventy three, um, having got one hundred and eighteen on the board. So that was a, a pretty stirring performance. So we've had quite a few countries qualify already. Netherlands are through, Ireland, Namibia, and PNG so far. Scotland's playing as we record. I think actually Scotland. Uh, are up against the UAE and one of those teams will go through and then Oman will play Hong Kong tomorrow and one of those, the winner of that, will go through. Here's the thing that I've been paying attention to from those that follow Associate Cricket really closely, fantastic journalists out there at the moment. If you want to follow a podcast on it, Tim Cutler, uh, a friend of ours, has been running the Emerging Cricket pod for the last year or so and they do a great job of um, keeping the finger on the pulse. Is that it, This isn't a case of countries like uh, Scotland or Ireland or Netherlands or 
Kenya or the UAE being rubbish now. So I think that you look at it and you go, well, hang on, if, if, if PNG are making it and Namibia are making it, then what's wrong with Kenya? They made the World Cup semi-final back in 2003. It's, it's more the case that a lot more teams now sit in the second band. It used to be, you know, a mm. few of them might get the occasional World Cup. Uh, they'd be a bit of a novelty item, like when Namibia made it in 2003, for example, and they got, they got plundered all over the place. But, and like when, you know, Holland had a, a similarly disastrous campaign that year as well, but it's different now. There, there are a whole bunch of nations in that second band um, who can really take it to now full member nations when you consider the fact that Ireland are in this competition as well, and they've not they've not got through easily. And Scotland beat England last year in a one-day international, uh, and, and they're in the mixer for this as well, yet to qualify. So it's another reminder that more teams are becoming seriously competitive on the world stage, which means we should be increasing uh, the size of these tournaments. We should be looking at where we can grow the footprint. I mean, it's not really in fashion to talk about the World Cup at the moment with 50 over cricket because we're three and a half years away from the next one but it is a reminder that that World Cup for instance should be bigger because it, it can cope with it because the, the standard of cricket is getting better and, and that's a great thing which we should celebrate. Yeah I mean you, you could definitely cope with 12 teams or 14 in the 50 over World Cup and yep. and obviously in T20 cricket it's a bit easier still to have upsets or for teams to be competitive across the shorter format so there'll be six qualifiers from here who will go through and then they'll join up with Sri Lanka and Bangladesh in the early stages of the T20 World Cup and then they play a round robin thing and then four teams the top four teams from that go into the main draw so there's there's repercharge after repercharge yeah, they're calling um, it they're calling that the, uh, the Super 12 so they're going from the 14th to the, oh, yeah. the Super 12 I just want to make an apology Jeff on behalf of um uh, on behalf of us and behalf of, I guess it's Melbourne really, isn't it? I apologise on behalf of Melbourne for, for the big dance um, tag being used to describe the World T20 next year. It's all over the ICC's <coughs> branding. It's fucking boorish and nonsense. And this is our fault as a city. We've let our grand final in the AFL slowly but surely. We've allowed it to become the big dance. I don't know how this happened precisely but now it's migrating into cricket because of course as as we know and as our great friend Sam Perry from the great cricketer always reminds us uh, cricket is just merely football these days and and now it's um reached the uh the, the ICC towers in Dubai and they're using it in, in all their social media content so um it's it's the official tagline for the tournament that's uh, that's the it's the yeah. official thing it's our fault yeah. and we're can sorry can i can i make a confession please i don't i don't mind it Oh, I Jeff. Don't like the big dance. It's all right. Like I don't love it, but I don't mind it. it doesn't bother me. Mm. It's it's you know dancing. It's fun. Who doesn't like dancing? Who doesn't like a dance that's bigger than a different dance? I just feel like like I cricket's mean, great. I love cricket. Cricket's awesome. We don't need to copy from yeah. footy. Like we just don't need to do it. It's more my point is that it's a shit thing in okay. footy, and, and and we don't just need to go. Oh right, they do this in this sport in in, in Melbourne in in uh, mm. you know, south of the Brassy line where where you know AFL's the major code of football in Australia. That's really successful. So we'll just do that. No, no. Don't. Cricket's good. I think uh, I think I'm with you on the copying thing, um, yeah. but I'm not with you on, on the grand final thing. When the AFL grand final is referred to as the big dance, I think, well, fair enough. It's big, <laughs> it's a dance. It's, it's kind of nice that it's given a term that's something artistic and creative, you know, the big opera, the big uh, art installation, you know, the, the big experimental theatre piece, the big dance. It's not just about footy and punching people in the head. It's about dancing. I used Dancing's to have my... Nice. I used to always say on pre-grand final... I mean, Jeff, you and I have been very lucky to go to a lot of grand finals over the years because we follow successful clubs. But I'd always have a really, really, really big dance on the Friday night. 
and, and knowing that you kind of rule the town on grand final eve if your team's playing everyone's looking at you everyone's jealous everyone wants to be you so you lap it up knowing that if you lose the next day you simply go home and you're in bed by 7 30 and if you're not you do it all again off a couple of hours sleep and your adrenaline carries you through for a, an equally fun night on the saturday too so you know big dancing and grand finals do go hand in hand in that respect yeah, if you win, you're in bed by 7.30am rather than PM. Correct, it's just correct. A, it's just a, a, oh, that was such fun operation. times. Do you miss those days? I miss those days. I think about it all the time. Those grand finals at the MCG, we've been so, so lucky to see a ton of them. They really are the best. I mean, even though it's very inconvenient flying home from England, uh, from London to attend them, uh, they have been just <laughs> a, a, true, a true joy. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway. <laughs> It might be a while before either of us do it again. We'll be about 68 by the time we roll it Probably, roll it probably. Again. All right, on that note, Jeff, uh, let's uh, press pause, uh, knowing that we've got our interview with Dan Liebke coming up on the 50 greatest games of cricket of the last 50 years and then uh, some deep nerd pledge work. Before we get there, though, uh, we, we should really spend some time talking about our friends at the Satphone Shop. Well, it's very important that I'm meeting with Satphone Shop representatives. We're having a high-level powwow in Melbourne <laughs> over the next couple of weeks to get our hands on some merch. Now, we've been talking yes. about the goods, but we're going to get our hands on the goods. I don't know what the goods are. I don't know what the goods will be, but the goods will be good. They'll be good goods because otherwise they'd be bad goods and that would be contradictory. And and when we get hold of the goods, we're going to bring the goods to the live shows. Uh, we've got a live show in Melbourne on the 18th of November. We've got a live show in Adelaide on the 27th of November. A- and at those live shows, we're going to have some of the stuff that you can get from Sat Phone Shop. What will we do with it? I don't know. Uh, will we give it to you? We might. I we might. It might involve giveaways. It might involve uh, some sort of interactive multimedia display. Maybe you can play snake on it uh, but I don't know we're going to work it out as we go but I'm going to see what I can get hold of and then we'll work out what we can do with it but you know if you're in the market for a satellite phone you can go to satphoneshop.com and you can ask them and they'll uh, they'll they'll give you something they'll sort you right out you can rent them you can buy them you can uh, I maybe steal them if no one's looking I wouldn't advise it it's not how commercial operations work but it just it's down to you really isn't it it's down to you wasn't life simpler when the only thing you had to consider on your mobile phone was how you were tracking on snake 2 my, I, have, I have like that being a, like a positive memory when it was omnipresent when you were comparing scores with your mates in the schoolyard when phones whatever at the time when everyone was just getting their Nokia 5110s or whatever they were inferior mm-hmm. to the sat phone of course I don't know why I'm talking about Nokia in sat phone spot but here we've come this far um, it, it feels like a simpler time like sort of a like I don't know a pre-September 11 time a pre uh, you know yeah. when, when, when life was just that f- fraction easier do you remember how exciting it was when phones got the blue screen for the first time? I do. Because I all do. the earlier Nokias were green screens green. and then someone gets the blue one and they're like, check this out. And you go, whoa. What about when the phones lost the aerial? Does that stick in your mind oh. as well? When they went, I think it was the 3210 or something like that, where they went from, you know what that actually was? It was going from snake one to snake two. I even remember it down to that level of detail. But it was a, it was a serious thing when you could get a phone and, and be able to, um, feel like you were connected. The Nokia 3210 was the model that got rid of the aerial. Was it like the 88 or something that had the aerial? The 5910, I reckon. I reckon. 5910, I don't know why I remember that, but maybe that's maybe that was my phone number growing up. 
Possibly it was. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, fifty nine ten. So no, it wouldn't have been that. Um, I'm pretty sure there was an eight. There was an eight eighty involved in some way. But nonetheless, if you go to satphoneshop.com, you'll get something better than a Nokia thirty two ten, and that is not a comment I make lightly. So uh, check them out, and um, and and they will hook you up with the ability to play Snake anywhere on the planet at any time. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And our guest on the show today is a man who usually hides behind the anonymity of the internet but has ventured out into the open for a rare sighting like a young spring deer nibbling at some new shoots of foliage in a glade. Will he be destroyed by some woodland predator? We don't know. This is what we'll find out over the next few minutes. Dan Liebke has joined the show today. Uh, he has just written, well, about the 19th book that he's written this year. And, uh, but, but he didn't originally become famous from writing books. He originally became internet famous for impersonating Nathan Horitz on the internet. Uh, and that was the question I wanted to ask of you first, Dan, is how does one create the job of specifically an online cricket humorist? Oh, um, I, I, th- I think the key is to write about 40,000 jokes about ongoing cricket matches. And then um, eventually one of them will, will stick. Uh, in my case, it was Mitches and Marshes, just tallying those numbers up, and then, then you're away. That's all you got to do. My, my memory of first coming across you, Dan, was, was yeah. in the fake Nathan Horrocks era. Um, I, I have a recollection of when uh, Ritzy uh, sold all his kit uh, after he was surplus to requirements in the Australian setup, and that I think that might have been when I found your account. And by that point, you were doing huge numbers back in, I guess, the early, relatively early days of Twitter and so forth. But I want to drill down a bit further. Why did you pick Nathan Horitz, and and how did it happen? Like, what was the idea? Where did it germinate from? I, I, I think the the basis of that was in, in, way back when we're talking. I don't know when we're talking now. 2011, 2010, when I first started, um, I, that, that was kind of the heyday of fake. People, there was like fake Steve Jobs back in the day, and and there were there were a few fake cricket Twitter accounts, and they were all you know the superstars. There was like fake Ricky Ponting and fake Watto, of course, and all the all these other guys. And I just thought I'll, I'd go the exact opposite way and choose the most boring player in the team that I could think of. And unfortunately, that was poor old um, Nathan Horrocks. So I I chose him, tweeted about him, you know, tweeted in his persona for about four tweets and realised there's nothing that funny to say about Nathan Horrocks. <laughs> so then I just started doing jokes, you know, regardless of whose voice I was supposed to be interpreting. It, it totally fitted your persona, though, Dan, because you're an unassuming sort of guy. I was quite interested when, when we first met to to realise it, and I say this in the most flattering sort of way. <laughs> you know, you could be working as a manager at Vic Rhodes. You're, you're, a, you're a very... <laughs> <laughs> normal looking guy you could blend into the background yet you're you're modest in appearance and demeanor you're not you're not jumping around saying hey I'm a comedian listen to me I'm the funniest guy in the room you'll keep your own counsel a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know that that you're a secret comedian because you keep your mouth shut quite a bit in person and then on the internet you know one, once you're working in text you're quite an extravagant um, and, and very funny individual I, I try to be, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely better with a written word. So, yeah, I, I, tw- Twitter was perfect. Twitter was perfect at 140 characters. There was an art to that, to getting the joke down to that 140 characters. You can still do it, but it's you know, not, not quite as much fun these days when you've got the, the, the vast extravagance of 280 characters. You can waffle on. But no, there, there's something beautiful about the 140 character. Squeeze, squeeze the entire joke into that, those, those words. 
Well, yeah, a lot of comedians have made their, I guess, made their career out of Twitter. I, I remember reading Rob Delaney's book, which went to this point. He said he made a decision to not hold back on Twitter and to do everything on there rather than preserving material for his stand-up shows. And in the end, that, that paid, I guess, a fairly enormous dividend for him, as it has for yep. you writing these books as you are now. The other thing I wanted to touch on before we get to uh, the substance of your text is the uh, Jeff and I, over the last couple of years, well, no, not last couple, that's, that's, um, that's not being reasonable to Glenn, the last five or six years on the podcast have spent an inordinate amount of time invested in Maxwell, Glenn Maxwell and Maxwell Ball as a, as a consequence. And I reckon I'm the first person to put it into an article citing you <laughs> as the originator on Twitter of the jargon, yeah. uh, which which I guess that was back in the, the when he was first playing international cricket or something like that. But it's only right to note Probably that anyone... 2015, that, I reckon, well, around yeah, the World Cup then. Right, around the World Cup, yeah. Well, anyone that says to us online, you know, whenever Glenn Maxwell does ridiculous things like he did on Sunday uh, and they cite Maxwell ball at us, I feel like reminding them it's actually a Liebkeism initially. <laughs> It is. I, I was. Um, I, I was very pleased. Uh, you, every now and then, you could see a a banner at the MCG which has Maxwell Ball written on it, and a few people did tweet me excitedly saying, "Oh, who's you know? Have you seen this? Isn't this amazing that it's spreading?" And I have to very sadly point out that that's Cat and her kids, and Cat's my partner, so <laughs> that's um, a little, little little disappointing for them. That is one way of spreading it, though, is is to um, <laughs> develop a romance with another online cricket humorist, <laughs> and then. Yeah. You know, then you've got to make sure that someone at least has to take up your jokes at that point. Exactly. I think I got it. I got it into a headline. I reckon um, in the Guardian over the <laughs> at some point during you the did. World Cup. So we I think we've done fairly well at getting that one out there. Uh, but you've you've managed to go mainstream. You've gone mainstream, man. You know, you're like we used to like you when you were like <laughs> I've sold doing out. cool indie <laughs> shit. But now you've sold out and you're writing books. The the newest one is the 50 greatest matches in Australian cricket with an asterisk, and then it says of the last 50 years because uh, you know you, yes. you have to make sure that people don't send you angry tweets saying oh this is bullshit the earliest ones in 1971 and blah 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 um so you know 71 is in the last 50 years yeah well that's what i'm <laughs> yeah. saying so if, if they're saying oh, that right. yeah yeah sorry there was nothing before yeah. 1971 yeah you're, you're not doing bradman in 1937 when he batted at number seven etc nah. etc et which you know yeah. frankly i'd be outraged about if you didn't have the caveat but you do have the caveat was that largely just because that's the the televised era and that's what you can go and find footage of to be able to recreate those games for people? A little bit. I, I originally tried to pitch uh, the 40 best games of the past 40 years um, just because they're the ones that are, you know, given, given my age, which is approaching 50. Um, yeah, I, 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 can, I can vividly remember pretty much every game within those last 40 mm. years. Uh, so they, they were pretty easy. For the ones, you know, early 70s, I had to do a little bit more digging to and go, oh, yeah, that's that's what I've heard. That's what, you know, that's what people say and you know, consult scorecards and the like. It was mostly just a way to, you know, to, to stop too many complaints about not having the first tie test in there. Spoiler, the second one is in the there. The second one is in there, but I, 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 I sort of, <laughs> when going through it, thought about the television point that Jeff raises there. And, um, I mean, coming in at number 47, you've got a game from a series, which is the penultimate one that wasn't televised back to Australia. So when Australia were in Sri Lanka in 1992, um, and I think in some respects, like, 
when you have to piece this together through your own memories of you know the coverage at the time, it's almost more special. So, for example, that Test match when Australia win, Shane Warne, as you put in the, the chapter, had career figures of one for 335 on the final afternoon at Colombo. Yeah. First Test match there. It was going pretty poorly for him. Greg Matthews was the, the principal spinner in that Test. And then Warne goes nuts, Border backs him in. Kind of the rest is history. But my memory of it is the next day watching Sports World with Bruce McAvaney telling us all about it on the television. <laughs> like, that's how I... That, that, yeah. My memories are pieced together from what I heard about it rather than seeing it. So, And I guess the same can be said to an extent for um, for the 1971, the first one-day international. I think there's there's some uh, news footage, but from memory, I don't think that, that, that game was televised because it was a... An exhibition yeah. game, so we, we you know we know a lot about that one day international, like Jeff Boycott playing in it and uh, Bill Laurie and the whole Test match having been been rained out. But the actual sort of yeah. uh, game itself, the only thing I know about that game, by the way, that that one day international, the first one that, that I like to tell people is that um, there was someone sitting in the grandstands that day watching who went on to kick 150 goals in 1971 and play in the Premiership, Peter <laughs> Hudson. So Hardo was there watching uh, the first one day before he um, had a great degree of success on the cricket ground through the season. But yeah, I guess like using your own memories, to what extent did you rely on your gut instincts before you went through and <laughs> made the list? To what extent were you thinking, oh, oh gee, I, I reckon 1990, that one day down in Bell Reeve with Bruce Reid and the runouts. I mean, is that you just yeah. knowing that intuitively and going back and doing the research or was it the other way around? Uh, no, that, that 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 was me remembering that game. There, I, I, there, there were a couple of games that I, I got in there just because they were funny, and that that was definitely one mm. of them. Bruce, poor old Bruce Reed, not being able to hit a ball off the final <laughs> final over. That, that 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 amused me enough. Most of the time, I tried to say, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do real great games, um, and then that one does qualify in some sense. But most of the ones I I, I made a short list of the games I remembered. Then, um, you know, there, there's probably the obvious ten or twenty that are just always going to be in there. And they're the ones that, you know, you don't have to say anything more than Adelaide. And all right, we know what you're talking about. And then, and then probably the next 20 or so were ones that I remembered. I thought, I'll have to get this in there. And then, then I did a whole heap of research, you know, looking for close games, looking for, you know, games that had a lot of, you know, hits, hits, hits on YouTube was, was a thing. Like if, if you know, it's, it's on there and there's a lot of YouTube views, then there must be something about it. All I can think of at this point, Adam, is someone asking you, you know, what's your greatest fantasy? And you say, MCG, first one international, Peter Hudson's there, he's just watching. He's just watching. <laughs> um, one of the things I have to take extreme exception to, Dan, in, in a process in which you've arbitrarily drawn up a list of 50 games and ranked them, is that the 2001 test in Calcutta is 26th. 26th. I know. That's I know. disgusting. That's an outrage. I know. That's an affront to, to all who've played this beautiful game. Uh, I was like, oh, I wonder if it'll be number one or number two. And Because and I started at the end and kept scrolling back and I was like, what's going on here? They must have sent me a dud yeah. copy. There must be a problem with this manuscript. They've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and, and imagine my shock when I get all the way down to number 26 and there it is. What a, what a gross insult to, to Laxman and Dravid. Please... Try to defend yourself in the court of public opinion. Well, I, I, I think my argument, which I, which I do say in the piece, was basically that they, that they were too good. They basically killed the game with that innings. Like the innings was definitely, or the partnership, sorry, was definitely, you know, close to the greatest partnership ever. If, um, but 
by the by the time they they were done, Australia were were dusted. Uh, they 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 still could have batted out a draw. Um, but yeah, I I don't regret pushing that down to twenty six. I think when going through this, uh, the bit that I enjoyed most was remembering little bits of my own kind of life as, as you remember them through the story so the Andy Bickle game for example yeah. Port Elizabeth 2003 World Cup which mm-hmm. features in the list, um, I don't really remember it for Andy Bickle as much as I remember it for being the day before my first morning of university <laughs> and my car getting broken into at the station that night because I'd been watching Hawthorne play Collingwood in a practice match at, the, at, at, at Docklands and on the screen we're watching Andy Bickle take these wickets while this <laughs> pre-season game uh, takes place in front of us and lo and behold when I got back to the Araman station in Dandenong at the end of the night my car was broken into <laughs> everything had been stolen including the, um, the the dodgy CD player I had put in there and that was my the, the morning before staying up super late watching Andy Bickle deposit James Anderson into the <laughs> scoreboard uh, to just about get them over the line I think that might have been the, the last over or penultimate over and then um, waking up yeah. in a new chapter of my own life starting so yeah there is something about there isn't there the rhythms of life and how they kind of we, we, we remember so much about um, where we were watching these games and that's why they stand out so nicely. Yeah, um, one of the things I did try to do in the book was, uh, you know, throughout it, I, I'd throw in, you know, pop cultural moments to, to try and trigger some of the memories of what was going on, you know, in, in, the, in the wider world at the time, you know, what movies were big, songs, uh, TV shows, etc. So I, I did that a little bit and, you know, just, just to try and, yeah, as you say, help help people get back into the the time period, into the era. Okay, let's. I'm going to throw a spoiler in the mix. If you don't want to know okay. what's the number one game, you know, turn off your podcast right now. But I, I think right you'll be safe on the tip to guess. Of my <laughs> um, 1999 <laughs> Edge Baston World Cup semi final. Your you went into print saying it was the greatest one day game of all time, and then you had to put in some like footnotes and so on, saying, "Well, yeah. I guess you could say that maybe the World Cup final of 2019 <laughs> was." Did that happen after you'd already decided the order? Was that a late scramble to get that qualification in and to try to make your that- argument? That was a very late scramble. I remember watching that bloody World Cup final, thinking, "All right, as, as long as it's not a tie, it's fine." As, and then it's just like, oh, "Yeah, that's fine," because it didn't matter. It was, it was a game Australia weren't involved in. All, all I had to do was it not be a tie. Then, of course, they tied it. Then they tied the super over. I'm like, "Oh, for God's sake! What are you guys doing to me? This is all written." And then I tried to work out a way to rewrite it. And then I thought, "Nah, screw it. I'm just going to stick to my guns. Say the '99 game was better than the World Cup final." And it was. It had better players. Yeah, and I guess, like, I suppose, uh, using the 99 World Cup final, you can't avoid it, can you? Equally, you can't avoid um, the Leeds, uh, the, the, the game before that, the game that got Australia into the semi final, yeah. which I've been looking at quite a lot recently um, for another project I've been working on. Uh, and, and I, you know, in, in some respects, that Leeds game's a better comeback, you know, with respect to yes. what Steve yeah. Waugh did and then ultimately Tom Moody at the end, who was like this, you know, pick from nowhere for that World Cup squad and uh, came in and sort of saved the day with, with Steve Waugh at the very death. But yeah, like the, the, yeah, that's where I've, I feel like it must have been a difficult task ranking them because take the 05 Ashes series, you've got Edge Baston which mm-hmm. has the iconic finish and of course the Flintoff uh, in- intervals through the course of the of the match but I mean th- there is easily a case to be made that Manchester, even though it didn't finish in a conclusive result, it was a draw but Australia batting it out on my the day I turned 21, yep. actually, as it happens to um, another one of those personal <laughs> moments. Can't forget that. The you know um, that that didn't. I think sometimes we almost underrate Manchester because the other Test matches were so ridiculous. Well, I, I think uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you know that that, that series 
you, know, you can make the case it is the, is the greatest series of all time. That, that got that got two entries, I think, in the top ten. Yep. I think both those games are in the top ten. But they were two fantastic games. Um, yeah, and, and what, what what can you say? I mean, they it's, it's very difficult to split all those ones. At the yeah, top. and if not for those two, you'd probably have Trent Bridge in there as well. Of course, at the end with with, yeah, uh, yeah, with, with Hoggard and, and Giles at the very at the very end, making those runs to set up the oval beautifully. And Peterson, I mean, you know, you could yes. even have the oval in there, really, if you wanted to take it one step yep. further. That final day was was madness. So, yeah, it uh, definitely uh, stands uh, apart. It's crazy that no one ever talks about that series. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> <laughs> just just one of the most underrated series of all time, that one. Someone should make a documentary about it and play it incessantly <laughs> yeah. at every rain delay. Well, they did. During, speaking of rain delays, I mean, Jeff, I think we both saw at different parts of that uh, the rain in now where were we this summer Leeds during the rain delays on day one at Leeds you'll love this sleep here um, we they they were showing the Manchester Test from 05 specifically the first innings and Michael Vaughan's 166 which you know uh, yeah. is is a fine innings ultimately ended by Simon Kadich actually but anyway um, and Vaughan was sitting there in the press box watching it. He was sitting there watching himself <laughs> bat from 2005 and kind of quite enjoying it. I asked him at the time, that, how often do you watch this? And he goes, I haven't seen it that often, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of this and sit down and, in, and enjoy half an hour of watching myself bat. <laughs> so fair enough, too. I'm glad you were enjoying that. I was just in the rain waiting for it to stop yeah. and bloody cricket to start. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a very onanistic sort of cricketing moment, isn't it? Just just watching yourself bat for half an hour. But yeah. um, you, you could... Tell a little bit about your proclivities, Dan, from the book. 31 test matches versus 16 ODIs. Mm-hmm. You managed to squeeze one World Series super test in there um, and just yep. the two T20 internationals, one for the men, one for the women. You mm-hmm. made the argument in the book that it's hard to choose great games from women's cricket history because so many of them weren't televised, weren't broadcast and yep. thus weren't part of a broader national consciousness where not many people were following them and, and it's hard to, you know, there actually isn't footage dating back more than a handful mm. of years really that's that's easy to find and also that Australia have been so much better than most of the teams they've played against that, you know, much more of their games have been one-sided. So, you know, perhaps that's something in the next edition of this book that there might be a, a richer crop to pick from. I would definitely hope so because I, I I didn't want it to be tokenistic, but uh, as you say, I, you know, I had I had three different criteria that I was I was you know trying to cover when, when I was coming out of the games. It had to be you know ideally close, ideally you know a major game of some kind, and ideally you know really memorable, like sits in the public consciousness. And you didn't have to have all three of those. Two out of three would probably get you in there, but um, but yeah, it was, it was very difficult to find. You know, to go through the women's games and find one that you know that, that satisfied you know even two of those those categories. Dan Liebke, the book is the fifty greatest matches in Australian cricket. It's not an inherently funny title, but it is an inherently no. funny book. Um, <laughs> so once you get past the first page, you'll find that it starts to pick up in that regard. Um, had a lot of fun reading it, and uh, I'm sure you had a lot of fun writing it. And people should I go and grab do. their copies. And uh, thanks for joining the final word. Thank you, guys. Hi everyone, you're listening to The Final Word. It's Ishiguro here with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word. I'm Jeff Lemon. He's Adam Collins. And it's time for Nerd Pledge. The pledges, the nerds. Uh, the game where you go to the patron page, which people use to throw dollar coins in our direction, uh, leaving small indentations in our skin. But when they do that, they do it in amounts 
that have a cricketing significance. They challenge us to work out the numerology uh, as they support the podcast at the same time. It's incredibly multi-skilled, multi-talented, multilingual at times, and our patron supporters are the ones who make it happen. So let's get into some numbers. Do Adam, it. are you ready to Please. be challenged? Um now, this is one... I, I think we actually looked at Smiler's um, uh, pledge the other week and we didn't get it, but 275 was the number and uh, the suggestion that Smiler's made to me as a hint was that we look at partnerships and um, hmm. and, and we look at players who he liked a lot who, who may not be around anymore. And so... I uh, I had a little dig around, mm-hmm. and um, and and there's there's something that I found. Shall I shall I let you in on the please? Seat? This sounds good. Two seventy five. Now two seventy five is a number that you and I would have um, would have paid close attention to this in twenty seventeen, in the uh, in in the northern summer of twenty seventeen, because because two seventy five was a partnership. So I started looking for partnerships and I found there are a couple of significant partnerships in women's cricket. One is in test matches, India, when they played South Africa in 2014. Poonam Rout, the diminutive opener, um, put on 275 with Thirish Kamini in a test match. But there was an, another 275 more recently than that in the World Cup of 2017. Do you remember Sarah Taylor and Tammy Beaumont absolutely shredding South Africa yes. when they made 373 against them um, and just plundered them to all parts? And it was one of the more exhilarating pedal-to-the-floor moments of that World Cup where you thought this England women's team are going to win this tournament. I think we were elsewhere that day, weren't we, Jeff? I think we were calling a game possibly between Australia and India. Seems to stand out for some reason. And yeah, looking at the mm-hmm. scores coming through and seeing Sarah Taylor pile up the runs, it was uh, it was great to see her. Well, not quite turn the clock back, but uh, to reinforce that she was well and truly back in business before they went on to, of course, win that competition. So an appropriate figure, given we were only talking about Sarah's career a couple of weeks ago. Good stuff. Thanks, Milers. Smiler's a big Sarah Taylor fan. I'm pretty confident we've got that one right. Paul Davenport has sent through two twenty-one, two dollars twenty-one. What does two twenty-one mean? Uh, India were all out for two hundred and twenty-one in the World Cup semi-final in Manchester. So if Paul mm-hmm. is a New Zealand fan, I don't know whether you can deduce that from uh, the information that he sent through, but that would that would tally. Yeah. Um, when uh, when Dhoni was run out by Marty Guptill and. Jimmy Neesham at the end holding his nerve and, and all the rest of it. And given Jimmy's, of course, been a, uh, a final word guest in the past, there could be a nice tie in there. I'm going to go with that. That's a great, that is a great call. My thoughts were that there might have been a hint if I really dig into the into the weeds here. Uh, Paul Davenport. Now, Davenport with an A, sure, but Devonport is the name of a town in northern Tasmania. Where I'm going to be, and, where, uh, where, I, where I'm going to be in two days' time when I go from Melbourne. What? My next stop is I'm off what? to Launceston via Devonport. What else came from northern Tasmania, Adam? Uh, Peter Hudson. No, um, which comes up later, which we've already talked about in the show today once before. Two name checks for the great Hutto. Um, oh, um, the keg on yeah. legs, David Clarence Boone. What about R.T. Ponting? R.T. Ponting, of course, from, from Devonport. Uh, not, he's not from Devonport, is he? He's from Launceston, isn't he? Uh, but either he, way... He's from Launceston, but it's near Devonport. It's still we're not that far away. Half an hour away, I think, so... What was Ricky Ponting's last test century? Yeah, of course, 221 at Adelaide against India. That's nice. I like that. There you go. Really so good. if the Davenport connection is a Tasmanian one, then it could be, um, it could be Ricky Ponting's Davenport, last time. Davenport. I think that's... 
that's where I'd go rather than Rob Key's only century against the West Indies. <laughs> Big um, one too. For, for the 221. Uh, I've just got to revisit one as well before we move on. So 401 was for Dish Nahantarajas a couple of weeks ago and I and I yep. scrambled around and couldn't work it out and I remembered after the show that he told me and I've forgotten and it's Bo Casson's test number. He, he, uh, he So I don't know why he wanted to include Bo Casson in Nerd Pledge but hey, thanks Fish for being part of it. Uh, thanks for being so supportive of the show both as a listener and occasionally as a guest. I think we both said there's no way that Vish would have gone for an Australian cap number. Um, I dismissed you know, it. I said, I, I said there's no way Vish will have an Australian cap number and, and there it is. So, um, there it is, there 401. It is. What's next? Next on our list, uh, Clive Azevedo, who is a, a very big supporter of the show. We've crossed paths up in Sydney before. I met up with Clive at one point. Thanks, Clive. Uh, 277. Well, I reckon it, this one's pretty obvious. Well, I was going to say, if it's, if it's a Sydney, if Clive's from Sydney, and that's where you've met him before, that's, of course, where Brian Lara mm. made 277 back in the summer of 92, 93. So, um, Clive, if we're wrong, tell us, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, I'm fairly confident that, that you're talking about Brian Charles Lara. I felt very confident that you would get that one, Adam, and you have not disappointed me on this occasion. <laughs> Thank you, Clive. Uh, Neil Whedon has come through with four fifty-six, four dollars fifty-six. Well, uh, Neil, what does four fifty-six mean? Yeah, four fifty-six is the amount of runs, the, the, the most amount of runs ever made in a Test match, which was Graham Gooch at Lords in nineteen ninety against India when he backed up his three thirty-three with a hundred and. Well, 100 and whatever it is that adds up to 456. I was uh, reading. I was reading about it last night uh, when reading through uh, Robin Smith's book. Oh, right. Uh, written by Rob Smythe. Uh, more on that on the final word soon. And Robin Smith um, was was urging. Um, Gooch to keep going and break the record of Sobers, which was 365, um, when he was 299 at the tea break on day two. And, and Gooch, by that stage, age 36, said, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm stuffed. And he went on to pass the triple hundred and get 33 more runs, but couldn't quite go on to break the Sobers record. But later in the test, backed up the triple with a, with a century. Of course, Mohamed Azra did, made a 500 in that test as well. So one of the more famous played uh, between those two nations. So I'm going to say that that has to be 456, surely. That's a great call. I, I've got a pretty good one to um, to come up against that, though, because when I saw 456, my first thought was the Ponsford and Bradman partnership. I thought, wasn't yep. that 456? So I went and looked Is at it? Ponsford stuff, and it was 451. Oh, so I was like, yeah. all right, it was close. But Ponsford had another partnership that was 456. Now, Not who in would test have cricket, but in first-class oh, cricket. Oh, right, right, and right. Would, and it remains the highest ever opening partnership in Australian first-class cricket to this day. Uh, when Victoria played Queensland in 1923, Ponsford and Edgar Main put on 456 for the first wicket, and that record still stands. Was that the game where they went on to make 1,000? No, they they only made about 600-odd because pretty much three guys batted, I think. Right. Um, they, both made, they both made doubles rather than triples or whatever it was, but so they pretty much went stroke for stroke um, and then rolled Queensland quickly um, and, and I think batted again for a short space of time. So. Two very good contenders. So 456 has a couple of good ones. Neil mm. Whedon, you'll have to let us know which because we can't come to it. Uh, Nick... No last name, only Nick. Hello, Nick. Oh, by the way, 456 is also Marcus Harris's test cap number, just as a, a, a third option. Probably not that, but it could yeah. be. He's in the team no. right now. It's, 
It's less interesting than the other ones. So, Neil, I hope you've gone with, with Ponsford <laughs> or with, with Gooch. Um, but if, if you've gone with Harris, we'll understand. Yep. Nick, no last name, has come in with 250-250. And what immediately mm-hmm. leapt out to me, Adam, was uh, JL. We were both the there, I'm sure. JL. I'm sure we were both there. Yeah. He brought up his – did he not bring up his 250 with a six as well that day at the G? I reckon that, that might have been – or he brought his 200 up possibly with a six. Either way, he, he made that score mm. in the Boxing Day test of 2002-03. When I reckon that that was when Hayden and Langer were never better. They just bullied England in that series and – especially in that inning. So I think the current Australian coach, Justin Langer. I think I'm very happy to go with that as well. Two five zero, nice even number. Thank you so much. In that game. And uh, yes, thank you to Nick for Thanks, putting Nick. that one through. Nick Donovan, another Nick, this one with the last name, has come through with 135. 135, Adam. Okay. Well, uh, I know that is the margin that England beat Australia by in the final test match this year. So it depends when this mm. nerd pledge came in because I know we have a, a little bit of a backlog, not a huge backlog, but if this came in before the second week of September, then it's probably not that. But if it did... I have no idea. Then it could be. Other than that, I have I have a feeling, Adam. I have a feeling it came in... I reckon it came in just after the third test. Is that what Benjamin Stokes made when he was not it out of Leeds? Well, there you go. 135. 135's everywhere. So I'm pretty confident. One, that's really that weird that I would remember the margin of the winning margin for England in the fifth test, but not remember Stokes's. <laughs> that's how my brain that's works. What he actually made. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, because I, I read that and was immediately like, Stokes. Um, yeah. Stokes, Stokes, Stokes. But Stokes, you read Stokes, that Stokes, and were like, Stokes. oh, the winning margin in the oval test, obviously. <laughs> Too many pieces to camera for you, I, I suppose, where you've got to remember what I the know, match right? was at the end of the day. Uh, thank you, Nick Donovan. Michael Cooney, a long-time friend of the show, oh, has come through with uh, not not just a pledge, but an outstanding pledge, a very generous pledge. $11.89. $11.89 he's put through. Now, that's got to be a bowling analysis, surely. Michael Cooney has been a great mate of mine for many, many years. We used to work together. Uh, until recently, he was spearheading the Australian Republican movement. He's the guy you'd occasionally see on television with the big Ned Kelly-style beard. Um, uh, he, he's since moved in, back into the legal fraternity. But um, we're very grateful uh, that, he, that he supports the show. And that's an amazing pledge, 1189. Um, I had a quick Google uh, a couple of minutes ago when I knew this was coming up. And I note that Don Wilson who played for England in Yorkshire, who died a few years ago, took 1,189 first-class wickets. I doubt, though, <laughs> I doubt, though, that Cooney is worrying himself with mid-20th century spinners. I suspect it's going to no. be someone's bowling figures, and I don't know who they are. Well, I, th- I think someone of, you know, I'd, I've, I've met Michael Cooney. I don't know his age, but I'd be putting him at somewhere in the 40s. He is in the 40s um, still. <laughs> so I, w- I was thinking about, okay, where does that leave him as, a, as an impressionable young man? What's he watching? He's probably watching the West Indies quite a lot growing up. Um, who, is, who is a bowler that a lot of people uh, love from that era who made an impression on them? The best match figures for Malcolm Marshall, 11 for 89. Oh, that's so good. I can't believe that Marshall never took more than 11 wickets in a test match. It stands out as a, hmm. a bit of a quirk, a bit like Mornay Morkel, who had, you know, obviously took in excess of 300 test wickets and had like 
eight fifers or something like that, ever so consistent, which of course Marshall was over a long time. And that's well well deduced as well in that um, Cooney did love the West Indies, does love cricket from that era. I think several mentions uh, of 80s and 90s cricket are in his book that he wrote um, a few years ago, which is called The Gillard Project from Memory. So I may as well give his book mm-hmm. a plug while we're at it. One of the best books written about that era, that tumultuous era in Australian politics. Uh, and now I'm glad that he's part of our, our project as well. Thanks, Cooney. And from one Canberra-related friend to another, Louise Crossman has jumped on, uh, oh. another friend of the show. Oh. Lou, I love you. How nice that that all the friends of the show are coming through. Um, thanks, Louise. Uh, we, we've caught up with around about the Canberra Test yep. earlier this year. You stayed at the house. Number, you stayed at the house two years ago during the um, during the uh, women's I ashes. Did. I did. Her number seven dollars seventy seven. Now seven seven seven. This one in a snap. I've, I've yeah. got this one. This is low hanging fruit. That's yeah. Elise Perry's run tally from last year. Um, and in the WBBL. In the WBBL. And that, that makes sense because Lou's been a, a great supporter of uh, the women's cricket stuff we've done over the years uh, and a wonderful human being. So that's great that we've got two Canberra friends back to back. Thanks, Lou. Uh, we'll see you soon when we're back in Australia. Martin Gibson has come through with $2.34. Adam. Oh, Marty wrote me a message about this a while ago and oh, okay. I can't for the life of me remember on what platform it was, but I do know that Andy Caddick took 234 test wickets, but I don't think that's going to do the trick. I don't remember what the clue was. I mm. feel in, we might have to return to this next week, but nevertheless, thanks for the pledge. Looking at cap numbers, maybe that might get me over the line. No, nothing really there. Um so it's possible it's Andy Caddick's wicket tally, but I suspect it's probably not. But but all the same, uh, th- thank you for for being part of the the, the new pledge project. We'll do better. Uh, send me a message and, and we'll go through it between shows. It's also um, two thirty four is Don Bradman's last Ashes hundred in Australia in nineteen forty six. Right, that's good. Um, it's Sydney, I think, in forty six. Uh huh. Because he made he made hundreds against India the following year um, and then went to England in 48. But yeah. that was the last time he made 100 in a home Ashes test. So nice. uh, whether that's related or not, I can't tell you, but, but Martin <laughs> Gibson probably can. Uh, one more, Adam, shall we do one more? Last one. Must be the last one because i got to go. Bruce Walker, 293. This is another one that I feel that I knew as soon as I saw it on the page. Yeah, it's the uh, it's, it's a bit of Saywagology to, to borrow from Joe. If you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Saywag having made a couple of triples and I said at the time he also made another, he, he nearly made a third triple mm. and couldn't quite remember the details so I went and looked it up at the time because that's what I do when we finish recording the podcast. <laughs> um, 293 from 254 balls <laughs> strike so whatever that is a strike rate of 110 or something um, back in 2009 he had a ridiculous couple of years between about 08 and 2010 mm. where he made the 300 the 293 another 250 he made a stack of 90s um, a stack of hundreds he was just you know did whatever he wanted for that couple of years so Bruce uh, 293 from Bruce Walker thank I'm pretty you confident that that's 
going to be Verenda Sawag. Thank you, Bruce. That's very kind. Hey, I've got to go, Jeff, so I've got to go and see an ultrasound of my unborn child on a TV screen, which is going to be quite fun. Then I've got to go to the airport. So I'll see you at the MCG in about 36 hours or so from now. Um, thanks, as always, to everyone for making this show possible, from Sat Phone Shop and Simon Wallace um, to Jay Mueller and Bad Producer Productions for pulling this together each week and his team absolutely magnificent editing as always uh, to those who've bought tickets to the live show a reminder that you can do likewise at finalwordcricket.com we'd love to sell out both of those shows I think we're going to so um, get on quickly if that's of interest to you to Dan Liebke uh, make sure you jump on and grab his book uh, and follow him on Twitter if you don't already he's one of the, the funniest people going around in our game on social media uh, and to all those who, who've jumped on and given us a review or a rating on iTunes or Spotify or or any of the other forums. It does make a difference. Uh, it's part of the reason why we're getting out to so many people at the moment is because we keep uh, appearing on the charts and, and that's a, a bit of a virtuous cycle. So if you've not jumped on and given us a review, a kind one hopefully, um, please do so. That, that helps a lot as well. Uh, and, and thanks to, for, for, to all of our listeners for their patience over the last month while Jeff and I have been separated. Well, we're going to be back together for the next five weeks. Can't wait to be doing five big shows week to week and also the two live shows. It's going to be a lot of fun as we work towards the start of the test summer as far as the men are concerned through the WBBL, the World Cup qualifiers and the other white ball cricket that's going on around the world. Jeff? I think you've said everything there is to say. Uh, from me, a sweet and longing farewell, dear listeners. Uh, we'll see you very soon. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out.